Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Eric Oliver here with us today with CostSegAuthority.com. So I'm going to make sure to have that link in the show notes, but we're going to be talking about cost segregation, and I appreciate your time here today, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jack. Looking forward to it. So for those who don't know what we're going to be talking about here today, it's always important to let's start things off and define what cost segregation is. Yeah, that's a good question. I wish I had a quick elevator pitch, but I'll try and do it as quickly as I can. Um, But cost segregation really is just accelerated depreciation. So uh, one of the reasons a lot of us get into real estate, um, one of the big benefits is the tax uh, benefits. And so part of that being depreciation. So when you buy an asset, you get to depreciate it over its useful life. And typically for real estate, uh, residential, that's either 27 and a half years or your commercial properties, that's 39 years. And cost segregation, instead of taking 127th or 139th every year for the next 39 years, what if we could front load some of that and take bigger deductions up front? And the way you do that is through an engineering-based study. It's called cost segregation. And we segregate the cost into different buckets. I don't know that that's a technical term, Jack, but that's what I like to use as buckets. And so If you think about it, when you buy, let's just use an apartment building as an example, but when you buy an apartment building, you're not just buying the land and the walls. You're also buying a bunch of appliances, a bunch of countertops, a bunch of cabinets. According to the IRS, all those items I mentioned should be depreciated over five years, not 27 and a half. And so that's really what we're doing is we're coming in and segregating the cost of that purchase price into different buckets, which allow you to accelerate your depreciation. And, um, and there's a number of reasons of why you would want to accelerate those deductions. Right. Um, so let, let's uh, take a moment and like define exactly when something like this would be worth it or not. Like, you know, uh, because you, you mentioned an apartment building, that makes a lot of sense. Would, would somebody who is investing in like a, a single family home rentals, is this something that they should consider as well? You know, that's, that's a great question because I think um, things have changed. So in the past, I would have said no. I would, and a couple of reasons for that. One is the studies were pretty expensive, and two, the benefit wasn't nearly as much as it is now. And so, um, and we'll we'll probably get into this here in a minute. But there's something called bonus depreciation that came about as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Those are the Trump tax revisions, and that really put cost segregation kind of on steroids, and it made the benefits significantly larger. And so now we do single family rentals all the time on, you know, a $200,000 single family rental, you might get a a $60,000 deduction. So you take that 60,000 times a 30% tax bracket, that's an $18,000 deduction, or excuse me, tax break um, by doing a cost segregation study. And typically a a residential like that uh, study might cost you around 3,000. So if you pay three to save 18, um, we do those all day long. and, and, And so I think that nowadays, um, yes, single-family rentals are good candidates, and then going from there, anything obviously larger—you know, apartment buildings, storage units, um, any revenue-generating property—is a good qualifier for cost segregation. Yeah. So you know, this is such a specialized tax avenue. How did you manage to get into this? You know, that's a that's a great question. So I was uh, I was living back east, actually, in New York, and was looking to come back west. We're our company's headquartered out of Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Um, I was born and raised here in Salt Lake. And my degree is in accounting, and I had some sales experience. And so I ended up finding this job, not really knowing what I was getting into. Um, that was about six years ago, and I've fallen in love with it. It is one of the most underutilized tax saving strategies out there. Um, it absolutely makes sense if your own real uh, great job. I love it. I love working with investors and um, kind of just fell into it. Like I said, I didn't really know what I knew it had to do with numbers and I knew it had to do with accounting, which kind of fit my background. But at the time, I wasn't investing in real estate and always wanted to get into real estate. And so I thought it'd be a great, great job. So over the past six years, you've probably seen quite a variety of situations. What has been like one of the biggest mistakes somebody has made that uh, you've learned from? Yeah, that's a great question because I think, and I'm going to take this a little bit off topic because it's not really geared towards cost segregation, but I think one of the biggest mistakes I see um, with the wide range of investors we work with is not paying for a quality CPA who understands real estate. And so I've, I've learned, I learned this lesson early in my career here, but there are tax preparers and there are tax consultants, and they're very different, and they charge very different. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I can walk into H&R Block inside of Walmart and get our taxes done. That's a tax preparer. They're taking the in information you give them, they're inputting it, and they're getting an output. And you're filing that with the IRS. Versus somebody who's a real tax strategist who understands real estate and meets with you peri periodically throughout the year and says, hey, Jack, you know, what, what do you have on the horizon? What type of income are you expecting this year? How can we help offset that? What other deductions do you have? What other avenues can we explore? And so I think, as I always share this with um, all the real estate investors that I, that I meet with, it's so important to have a, a quality CPA who really understands real estate. Because um, CPAs are kind of like general practitioners, Jack. They kind of, they know a little bit about a lot of different subjects because the tax code is, you know, thousands and thousands of pages. So if you're heavily involved in real estate, trying to find somebody who really understands that niche, because um, it's a whole different ballgame than just your average tax return. You know, when you start talking about owning multiple properties and different tax strategies. So that would be the one piece of advice that I learned early on here is well, pay the extra money for a good quality CPA. Well, you know, you, you bring up a great point. Like, do you have any tips or strategies on how to make sure it's a good fit or a proper CPA that that can consult in this nature? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I always recommend is, is does your CPA invest in real estate? If they invest in real estate, they're probably on top of all the different real estate strategies for themselves, which means they're, they're well-versed for their clients. And so um, there's a number of good CPAs across the country that are also investors, and they've grown their book of business by working with strategically working with real estate investors. And so that's definitely one thing that I would look for. You know, if you if I can't tell you how many times I've talked to clients who feel like they're educating or bringing these ideas to their CPA. If you're having to talk to your CPA about what cost segregation is, they may not be a good fit for you. They should be offering that to you as an advisor. Um, and so that's just, if you feel like you're educating your CPA versus the other way, your, your CPA should be educating you on different strategies not vice versa. So I, I'm, I'm hoping you can provide us with a couple examples. Like you, you kind of gave us kind of a snapshot of like a single family home and yeah. you said like $200,000 and, and, and $18,000 in, in, in credit. But can you give us like a real world example? Talk about a small investor that came to you and, and what you were able to do for them. Yeah. So we had, um, 
let me think of a, a good example. We had an investor who owned a, a small portfolio of single family rentals um, and sold one of them for a large gain. So they had a property that they had owned for a long time. I actually think they inherited that property. They sold it, had a significant gain on it and was worried about getting hit with that capital gains tax bill. Um, however, they had another, they had a, a portfolio of properties. And so we were able to do cost segregation on some of their other properties to help offset that large capital gain that they had coming their way. And we were able to save them tens of thousands of dollars by not having to pay that capital gain. Um, their properties worked out very well because there's something uh, called catch-up depreciation. So a lot of people think that cost segregation has to be done the moment you purchase the property. And that's just not true. Cost segregation can actually, you can kind of keep it in your back pocket and use it for those years where you have high income by utilizing what they call a look back study. So in this particular example, they had owned the properties from, I think they were from 14, 15, and 16. Um, this was last year for the 2021 tax return. So they had owned them for four or five years, been taking their standards, what we call straight line deduction, just that 127th every year, sold the property, had a big capital gain. And so we did cost segregation on their other three properties and were able to offset that capital gain by moving that depreciation forward and sometimes on those smaller properties, when you do these look back studies, they're great candidates because you get all that missed depreciation from 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. You get to bring all of that forward, drop it on your current tax return without ever having to amend your tax return. So um, there's a form that we provide as part of our study that's a tax form 3115. But basically, without getting too far in the weeds, that just tells the IRS, I've been taking my standard deduction for the last five years. I'm now going to accelerate my depreciation. And here's the difference in those numbers. And you get to take it on your current tax return without having to amend any prior year's tax return. So that was a, a good example of somebody who thought they were going to get stuck with a large capital gain tax bill. Um, and we were able to, by using some of their other properties, offset that that tax bill by doing cost segregation. So is is there a window of opportunity there, though? Is there uh, where you... you if if it's a certain certain number of years you've held that property, you've kind of missed your chance? Yeah, usually something over about 15 to 20. You know, especially on residential, if you've owned a property for 20 years, you've already taken 20 out of the 27 years worth of depreciation. So there's only seven years left. And there's not a lot for us to pull forward out of those seven years. So we like to run, uh, most cost segregation companies will do what they call a free benefit analysis where they, they look at the property, they look at how long you've owned it, what the tax law was the year you bought it or put it into service. And we can run an analysis to say, okay, you've already taken X amount of depreciation. We're going to be able to accelerate X amount. And here's the difference in those numbers. And here's what the expected tax savings would be long before they ever engage us to do the study. And so I always recommend if you've owned it, you know, within the last 15 years, if your in-service date was in the last 15 years, it's definitely worth us running the analysis to see what it looks like. Doesn't mean it'll always make sense, but definitely have somebody run the analysis to to take a look at. It. So you meant you said something there that that struck my ear. What you mentioned the tax law on when you bought it is is that that sounds unique in this situation. Is that is that the case all the time? Yeah, typically for for depreciation, usually you get to if you put your building into service, let's say in 2016 and you do a cost segregation study today, 
we go back and look at what the tax laws were or the provisions when you put it into service. And that's the provisions we go by when we calculate your depreciation. So to give you a, a kind of a real world example, um, I mentioned that bonus depreciation. And so bonus depreciation kind of put cost segregation on steroids. Anything purchased after September 27th of 2017 through the end of 2022 is eligible for something called a 100% bonus. And what that means is when we segregate your property, certain categories, you're able to take those deductions all in the first year. So normally we break things out into five, seven, and 15-year categories. And normally your five-year assets depreciate one, you know, over five years, your seven-year assets over seven years, your 15-year assets over 15 years. But if you bought it within that time frame, you're eligible for bonus and you get to take all of that in the first year. So to give you an example, if you bought your property in 2017 and we do the cost sake study today, if you bought it at the end of 17, we would be able to go back and apply the 100% bonus and get you all caught up to the current year. So yeah, the, typically for what we do in cost segregation, it's the what was the law the day you put your property into service. That's, the, that's what we look at when we're calculating the depreciation. So could you kind of give us a breakdown of like, what are some of those things that are within within a property, whether it's a, a single family home or a multifamily yeah. that would qualify for this type of acceleration? No, that's a, a great question, Jack. So I mentioned those five, seven and 15 year category, and then the rest is 27 and a half. So I'll give you an example of each. So your five year stuff is all your internal stuff, things like flooring, countertops, cabinets. Um, portions of the lighting, portions of the plumbing, portions of the electrical um, appliances, anything interior that's not structural. Your seven-year assets, there's typically not a lot. Um, sometimes we'll find telecommunication lines or cable lines. Those sometimes will fall in that seven-year category. And then your that's about it for the seven. And then your 15-year category is what we call land improvements. And that's all your exterior. So things like curbs, gutters, asphalt, concrete, irrigation, retaining walls, uh, we actually go down to as far as trees, bushes, and shrubs. We'll count how many trees, bushes, and shrubs because those are all landscaping, um, and they fall under that land improvement. So that 15-year is all your exterior, and then everything that's left over after that is all structural, and that stays in that 27-and-a-half-year category. Okay. So uh, on the on the flip side, you know, you, you gave us an example of the single-family home. Yeah. I want to hear about your your biggest impact. Tell me about your your a customer that you made, it was just a home run. It was like a no brainer when they, when they were done, it was, it just, it was mind blowing. Sure. So um, I have a client out of El Paso, Texas. Um, they own strip malls. Um, and I, I don't even know that I would call them strip malls. They own shopping centers um, because they're large shopping centers that usually have, you know, a, maybe a Ross or a TJ Maxx anchoring a Walmart. And then they've got all the strip malls out in the parking lot with, you know, places for get your hair cut, your nails done, um, all the restaurants. And they had not heard of cost segregation and they um, had been paying a number, a, a ton of money in taxes. And we were able to go in and look at their whole portfolio um, and save them millions of dollars. We actually, it was actually worth it for them to go back and amend the prior two years tax returns um, once they had heard about cost segregation and understood the benefits of it. So we looked back and did two years prior plus the current year, and it was, you know, 40 plus million dollars in tax savings. That's tax savings, you know, um, not depreciation. So they they were very, um, very happy to go back and amend a few tax years to, to be able to get those deductions. 
Well, I, I got to go back to something earlier you, you mentioned too. You know, uh, when you you said if you, I would have asked you a few years ago whether this would be worthwhile for single family home type investors, you said there were some tax changes that does make this beneficial now. Do you foresee any changes coming up that uh, we should be aware of? Yeah, actually, that same tax change, which was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that I mentioned, part of the Trump provisions, but that's bonus depreciation actually starts to phase out at the end of this year. So I had mentioned anything from September 27th through December 31st of 2022, um, September 27th, yes, of, of 17, excuse me, through December 31st of 2022 is eligible for that 100% bonus. Anything purchased next year in 2023, it's worth 80% bonus. And then it drops to 60% the following year, 40%, 20%, all the way until 2027 when it's at zero. Now, bonus depreciation historically has been kind of used as a lever that the government uses when they need to stimulate the economy. So that could definitely change depending on what happens between now and 2027. But currently, that's the, the law that's on the books is it starts to slowly phase out starting next year until uh, in 2027, it'll be back down to 0% bonus. Sure. You know, and, and uh, I, I sure hear a lot about energy credits and, and energy type um, uh, um, incentives in order to get people to, is there anything associated with that that we should be? Aware? Yeah. Uh, another great question. So um, two of the most underutilized energy credits and deductions out there, the first one being what they call 179D. And so if that's for any commercial building, new construction or a building that was renovated um, is eligible for that. And it's a dollar eighty per square foot. They actually just raised it to a dollar eighty-eight for inflation. And that can be broken up into three sixty cent parts. Um, one is for the lighting. And so if the lighting qualifies, you'll get sixty cents for the lighting, sixty cents per square foot for the building envelope. So the, the exterior walls, the windows, the insulation, and then the other 60% is for the mechanical or the heating and air. And so anybody who's building commercial buildings, no matter what the size, is eligible for that $1.80 per square foot deduction. And so it does need to be qualified by a third party. You have a third party come in, look at the prints, look at the building, run some modeling to figure out how efficient the building is. And if it qualifies, like I said, you're eligible up to $1.88 per square foot. The nice thing about the 179D is you can actually go back on buildings that were built in the past and take advantage of this credit without having to amend any prior year's returns, which is great. And also, which is great, is that you can actually just qualify for a portion of that. You know, you might not have the great heating and air units, but your windows are good, your insulation's good, and your lighting's good. You could qualify for the $1.20, just not the full $1.80. So it can be done in incremental parts, which is nice. And so uh, for any of your listeners that are are building commercial buildings, um, definitely look into the 179D deduction because it's uh, extremely underutilized and it's, it's tax savings that's out there for people to use. Um, the second one I'll mention, Jack, is the 45L energy credit. Um, this is an actual dollar for dollar tax credit. It's a little bit different in that it's for residential properties only, um, for apartment buildings under three stories. So if it's over three stories above grade, then you kind of shift into that 179D category. But anything on three stories or below um, is eligible for a $2,000 credit per door. So you start thinking about you build an eightplex, you could get a $16,000 tax credit. So that's different than a deduction. That's a dollar for dollar tax credit that comes off your tax bill. 
The 179D is a deduction that comes off of your income, which creates a tax savings. So I just want to make that distinction there. But um, the only thing with the 45Ls, they currently, it did not get extended through 2022. So you would have to go back and look at properties built in 2021. Um, you do have to amend your tax return for that credit. You cannot do that any other way. However, I do think, Jack, with the current administration, once they get moving on their tax plan, um, the 45L usually gets bipartisan support. Um, you know, the left is looking at the energy say or the tax or the energy savings. The right's looking at the tax savings. So usually, it's about the only thing in Washington they can agree on. To be honest with you, mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think that once they get to it, it will be extended for the 2022 tax year. They'll probably just retroactive it. Um, but as of right now, it only goes through the end of 2021 tax year. So for those of you who have extended. Um, you still have until October 15th to take advantage of those those credits. And remember, it's a $2,000 credit per door. So, you know, you're building a fourplex that's, uh, you know, an $8,000 credit. So Yeah, that can add up pretty quick. I always find it interesting how random some things sound, though. Like, it has to be under three stories. Like, where did, <laughs> where did that come from? I, I don't know. Somebody built a building under three stories and... Yeah. Or someone on the other side of the aisle built a building that was four stories or higher. They didn't want them to take advantage of it. Who knows? But I think I actually think the truth behind that is I think they wanted to give that credit to smaller investors, not the large ones who are building big sky rises. Um, right. And so that's why they kept that credit for it's really for single family and, you know, smaller multifamily developers. So, well, before we hit record, I asked you if there was anything in particular you wanted to cover and you mentioned recapture. Did we already cover that or is that something that we should? Uh, no, that's, that's probably something. Yeah. We should still touch on. Cause I think it's, it's kind of misunderstood out there or it's a question we get quite often. Um, so when you take all the depreciation, so remember in cost segregation, we're accelerating those deductions so that you can take those deductions in earlier years. When you sell an asset, you have to pay two types of tax. You pay a recapture tax and you pay a tax on the gain of the sell. And the recapture tax is calculated based on the amount of depreciation you've taken or the gain on the sell, whichever's left. And so people always say, well, why do I want to front load all my depreciation expense when I sell it in five years? Don't I have to pay all that back? And the answer is yes and no. You do pay a portion of it back, but you pay it back at a lower rate at a future date and save the spread. And let me just kind of walk through that. So the idea is you're going to do a cost segregation study today. And let's say I'm in a 35% tax bracket. I'm going to take my deduction against income that's being taxed at 35% today. When I sell it in five years, I pick that back up as either a capital gains or a recapture tax of 20%. So I'm saving a 15% spread. Even if I pay it all back, I'm taking my deduction at 35 paying it back in five years at 20% and saving the spread. And that doesn't even calculate, you know, time value of money, inflation. I've had my money for five years. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. You know, I could go invest that money and make 7% on it. It doesn't calculate any of that. Remember, just this is simple rate arbitrage. Take your deduction at 35, pay it back at a future date at 20 and save the spread. The other concept is, is you're not actually paying it all back. You're only paying back a portion. And I'll kind of without going too far in the weeds, Jack, just kind of back into this. But if you don't do cost segregation, say you buy a building for a million and you sell it five years later for two million. So everything doubled in value. When you go to settle up with the IRS, you're basically telling them that everything doubled in value. You're saying your walls are worth double, your land is worth double, 
And so is this dirty old carpet that has stains on it that I've owned for five years. Well, carpet doesn't go up in value. Carpet goes down in value, not up. Mm -hmm. And so actually in that example, carpet is a five-year asset. So after owning that carpet for five years, it has a book value of zero. And so you don't have to pay recapture on that. Remember I said you pay recapture on the amount of depreciation you've taken or the gain on the sell, whichever is less. There's not going to be, there's never going to be a gain on the carpet. You're not selling your carpet for more than what you bought it for five years ago. And when you don't do cost segregation, that's unintentionally what you're doing. You're saying that my carpet doubled in value. I bought this carpet for 50,000. I'm selling it five years later for 100,000 and I'm going to pay tax on it. You don't want to pay tax on that. It didn't go up in value. Your land and your walls went up in value, but your carpet certainly didn't. And so by doing cost segregation, it allows you to allocate your sales price to the right buckets when you go to sell, which in fact lowers your tax bill even more. So I just wanted to touch on that because I think that um, sometimes that gets misunderstood or that's a question we get quite often. Sure. Well, um, since, you know, you, you essentially, you know, you're, you're essentially an entrepreneur. I mean, you're owning your, your book of business associated with the, the company. I'm always, I always like asking this question because I, I, I want to steer off the conversation just slightly. Sure. And I want to understand what is the one change you made to your personal business that's made the biggest impact? Yes, that was humbling. I can tell you this. This is an easy question for me because I remember the day. It's I humbled myself by realizing that I'm not good at everything, right? I'm obviously, I can tell you, I'll give you another example. In school, math always came easy. Numbers come easy, but it takes me like 25 minutes to write a three-sentence email because English is not my thing. <laughs> so um, as far as entrepreneurship or any business owner is, know what you're good at and outsource what you're not good at. It's okay to pay somebody to do your marketing because you know what? Marketing doesn't come easy to me. I've tried putting together flyers and posts. I mean, they look horrible. You know, you give somebody who has that skill set, give them 10 minutes and their output's going to way outperform what I output. So um, be willing to humble yourself, know what you're good at and kind of stay in that lane and then surround yourself with people who, you know, get yourself a good finance person, get yourself a good marketing person, get yourself a good property manager. I learned that lesson early on. Tried managing my own property. You know, had two tenants in there that never paid rent <laughs> back to back. Had to evict them both. And I don't think I've been paid from the one tenant yet. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, get people who are expert. Oh, that's the other thing. I didn't run, I didn't run background checks because I was doing it myself. I knew what I was doing, right? Didn't run background checks, didn't run credit checks, learned the hard way. It ended up costing me because I didn't want to pay that 10% to a management company because I wanted to keep that profit for myself. So be willing to pay for good expertise. It's going to benefit you in the long run. Going back to our kind of where we started, Jack, is pay for a good CPA. If you had to pay them a thousand bucks, they're going to save you 10,000 on the back end by being a good quality CPA. It's worth every penny. So surround yourself with good people who are experts in their own arena would be my advice. Sure. No, that's great advice. Um, again, I just want to point everybody to your website, costsegauthority.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. Perfect. But Eric, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you giving us the cost segregation 101 lesson here today. Uh, but before I let you go, is there a question or concept that you wished we would have taken time to cover? No, I think that's everything. Um, I appreciate uh, you allowing me to come on. Please use this as a resource for you or any of your listeners. Um, my contact information is on that website. You can get a hold of us. We can review your property. Or if you just have depreciation questions, like I said, we 
We don't do tax returns at our firm. We're kind of a niche firm where we just do cost segregation. So we'll partner with your CPA. Um, we see all different types of stuff going around the country from good to bad to ugly. So let us get with your CPA. If they have questions on depreciation, um, we'll have the answer. We'll be able to find the answer for them. So please feel free to use this as a resource. Well, I appreciate you again here, Eric, and and you're welcome back. I hope you'll take me up on that invite. Sure. But again, it's costsigauthority.com. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Jack. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.